And so for our absolute favorite <laughs> clip of all of the seasons of all 50 episodes, we are going to play from season three, episode five, our favorite. Now the real drum roll. <laughs> Ready to listen? I'm Emily Shields. I'm Andrew Seligson. And I'm Marisol Morales, and you're listening to Compact Nation Podcast. Hi, everyone. Uh, how's everyone doing? And uh, welcome to our 50th episode. Are you so Woo-hoo! not excited? <laughs> I know. That was that was a drum roll for the listening audience in case you were wondering whether there was just an audio Love fail. tap, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's pretty exciting. It was fun to look back uh, and also listen back because I think we've gotten a little better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't remember that we had uh, recorded the first episode underwater, but <laughs> right, right. that's what I learned when I listened. Not great audio, but it's been so much fun and yeah, just it's a highlight of my week whenever we do it it's a highway of highlight of my bi week i know that's what i was trying to come up with it's not every week well good thing we believe in continuous improvement and so i'm sure our listeners have uh, seen the difference over the 50 episodes and glad that we've been able to evolve uh, and also bring some really interesting topics uh, to discussion in the field great guests yeah, I will say our technical skills have gotten better as we went. But I think even from the beginning, look, listening back to something, we had great people yeah. talking about really fascinating things from from the gate. So that's been that's been great. Yeah. And I don't know about you all, but um, often when I am like doing events on campus, I'll have a few people come up to me and say, hey, I, I listen to the podcast. And so I think that's really cool. And so thank you so much to our listeners. Um for putting in the time, listening, and, um, you know, sort of uh, having fun with us as we go on this journey. Which, speaking of our listeners, I got, after one of our recent episodes, I got an angry text from my mom because she was mad that she learned I had broken my finger on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So note to other podcasters, let your mom know before you broadcast it. (laughs) I've actually been getting angry texts from Emily's mom right from the beginning of the podcast. So I'm surprised that's the first one. It's so funny that I even, she'll be so mad. I even described it as angry because she's like the least angry person in the world. (laughs) It's like Iowa angry. Angry, not like New York angry. Super nice and respectful, just maybe a touch passive aggressive. (laughs) So, yeah, my mom listens. We know that at least. (laughs) I think if I described it to my parents, they wouldn't understand a pod. What? Yeah. I'll just touch base with her. I think it's maybe helped because, you know, we do have the type of job where it's like, what, what, what do you do? Um, right, we had our awards event yesterday and the photographer came up to me in the middle of it um, and was like, what is Campus Compact? And I was like, yes, hmm. maybe I can't cover that right here, right now in the middle of this event. 
It's in the but contract. You, read it. <laughs> but if you watch the whole award ceremony, I think you'll get a pretty good sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, we thought that we would share with our listeners some of our favorite episodes from the past three years, considering it's our 50th episode. So join us in um, a walk back in time. So my favorite, when I thought about favorite clips, my mind went right away back to our first episode because while there were things we were still working out, uh, we interviewed Tim Eatman and I just feel like every single time I hear him talk, the wisdom that I'm able to gain is incredible. And in particular, he talked a little bit about blind spots and just the fact that it's it doesn't mean we're bad people that there are things about the world that we don't naturally see. Our brain has to do that. And if we just recognize that and just see it as a future of being a human, um, I think that would change a lot about how we interact with the world. And I was just really moved by what he had to say. Our network of, of colleagues within Imagining America uh, are doing amazing work with games and, you know, with public murals and with interrogating the notion of civic professionalism and assessing the practices of public scholarship. And I have, I'm often surprised, like, wow, oh my goodness, that's another dimension of knowledge making. And it does what I think we need to do, which is to respect the blind spots. Yeah. I love to hear Kathy Davidson talk about, you know, the uh, neuroscience research that just demonstrates, you know, how healthy it is that our mind shuts some stuff out in order for us to, to just be able to focus and, and to advance certain lines of work. But that means essentially that we have to be clued in to the blind spots. And so in the fullness of the disciplines that helps us, you know, uh, achieve that goal. We have to understand that what we think we know about community engagement and community interactions are often tremendous blind spot for us academics because of the way that we've been socialized. I am surprised often by what I'm learning about how powerful different types of research and modes of inquiry can be. Well, Tim is, you know, one of my favorite people. So uh, I always love hearing him speak. And um, I think what I took away from that was like the energy, um, you know, behind this work and and also sort of the call for us to continuously be in that reflective space as practitioners. Right. And so we build that so much into the expectations that we have for students doing this work, but how much do we build it into our own practice? And so I, I feel like it was, you know, somewhat a call to action for, mm-hmm. for that. I'm always interested. Maybe it's because um, when Tim speaks, it's with a kind of prophetic voice, but I'm always interested in how much of our work amounts to uh, applying the basic principle that we should do unto others as we would have them do unto us. And the idea that like, we know that other people don't know our experience. We know that there's stuff about our own lives that is not opaque to, uh, sorry, that is not transparent to others that we are in fact opaque. And we also forget that about other people all the time. And I think obviously academics have a particular, and I count myself among that tribe in this context, a particular challenge to remember what we don't know. And uh, so that, uh, yeah, I just really appreciate that reminder. Yeah, absolutely.
So the first clip I chose was from season one, episode six. It's an interview with Yaz Najibi, one of our Newman Civic Fellows that year. Yaz is talking when we kind of pop in about work that they have done uh, organizing against a pipeline that was scheduled to kind of cut right through uh, big parts of rural Vermont. And what we do is talk to landowners about the pipeline. So we it's a bipartisan initiative. So the, there is the environmental justice issue of the pipeline of frac gas, which is like totally marketed as being cleaner than carbon, which is not true because an extreme amount of methane leaks at well pads, uh, which contributes to overall emissions. And also the emissions of methane are more hazardous to the environment than the emissions of carbon dioxide. Um, so we know that frac gas is not cleaner, but we didn't want to be a bunch of liberal hippies talking to rural Vermonters about a pipeline because we knew that wouldn't be successful. Um, so we leveraged a more bipartisan and social justice component, which is the fact that the gas company trespasses on people's land, manipulates people. Uh, forces people to sign easement agreements, holds eminent domain over people's heads, like very threatening, very coercive, uh, which we learned a lot from the phase one landowners who dealt with all of that. So uh, we canvass people and we tell them, hey, there might be a pipeline in your backyard. Uh, how do you feel about that? And whether or not people are for the pipeline or against the pipeline, we ask them, you know, how would you feel if you came home one day and there was a bunch of gas employees surveying on your land without your permission? Nobody likes that. Yaz is a student uh, who is non-gender binary, uses they pronouns, who comes from a uh, kind of mixed ethnic and racial back background with a, a name that signifies the kind of Muslim heritage that her father brings to their family. And Yaz was so thoughtful about talking about being who they are and entering into spaces with people very different, with very different life experiences and backgrounds, but finding common ground to pursue an interest that was important to them and that could be seen to be important by people, again, with, with these really different experiences. Uh, so that that for me was really powerful. And to hear that coming from a student and, uh, you know, who, who was also interested in sharing that approach to the world with others, deep commitments, but also a willingness to think about the perspectives and the lives of people with very different kinds of uh, perspectives on life. That was what I was uh, was interested in. I think all of our interviews with the Newmans and students have been some of my favorites because it's always just so remarkable and impressive to hear the level of thought, the amount of leadership happening right now. I mean, I always come back around to we we talk about students as future leaders, but every time we have them on, it's so clear that they're leading right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the way they um, identified um just connecting with people on things that they care about. And so part of that means learning and listening to, to, to the things people care about. And, you know, starting with that opens up opportunities for connections that, you know, we, we would not have imagined. And so it is inspiring um, to see that and to, you know, again, with the Newman Civic Fellows, just how energizing, um, that group of students is. And like you said, Emily, like they're leaders now. We need to continue to give them the space to do that. So the second clip I chose was from uh, an interview we did live at the Midwest uh, Conference 
two, three years ago, um, I guess two years ago. And it's with Byron White, who is executive director of Strive Partnerships, a collective impact organization working on educational attainment in Cincinnati. Byron was previously a vice president at Cleveland State University, had a lot of experience in higher education before uh, moving into the role he's in. And when when he starts talking in the clip, I've just asked him a question about how do you, when you're trying to work in partnership with communities, how do you identify who represents the, represents the community uh, as kind of the, the contact point for the partnership? And so you'll hear it's a pretty long response, but um, Byron just digs into the, the complexity that that question raises. Yeah, that that's that's always the question. Who who are the folks who are there? Who are self-anointed and otherwise? Um, so one one way I would start this is to say reflect on on the organizations and institutions we work for. And if if I were to come to you and say who's real, who's not real, who's in, who's not in. Who's the real person who represents the institution who does it? Here are 20 faculty working in the neighborhood. Um, who do, which one do I go see to get the real notion of what the university means? It's a mess, right? <laughs> it's, there, and so, and so in some ways, I think we sort of expect a different level of order from the community than we have ourselves. It's just that we know how to navigate our our level of order. We know the code words, we know the cues, we know the symbols, and the same is true for the community, right? So when you go in and sometimes in demanding, okay, give some clarity to this mess, like who's legitimate, who's not, who represents, who doesn't, you know, we don't do a much better job of that. Having said that, one of the things that is important is um, who are by looking at what the community does rather than just what it says or just what it's assigned to do, you, you do start to get a sense of um, where legitimacy rests in the community. Um, uh, one, you know, one sort of central community organizing question is if you go and say, um, listen, I'd like to talk with 30 residents tonight. Can you pull them together? There are some organizations that can do that and some organizations that can't. The organizations that can are kind of a signal that they have some legitimacy. Um, and so one, as we've thought about this ecosystem, we've been very careful to distinguish influencers from a community sphere of activity from institutions. And here's the way we think about it. Influencers are those folks for whom, because we're, we're talking about students being at the center, Students and learners would identify as having legitimacy and impact in their lives. They would, not necessarily the folks who declares, uh, the folks who declare that they are. But if I ask young people, who matters, who are the champions of education in your life, they would say this group of people. At the community level, it's who's mobilized people like that to do work at a community level. That could be, you know, um, an association. It could be sometimes a faith-based community. Um, and then at the institutional level, it's more of um, where are folks, professionals, people being paid to do that work. So um, there's no hard, fast way to distinguish this. 
but the signals of it have to do with how people are making choices. I think where it really becomes difficult is that sometimes the community identifies um, and gives legitimacy to individuals or organizations that are problematic for the institution. Um, why that person? Um, are they the best representative? They're not the easiest person to get along with. They aren't the folks who really understand what we do. And, um, you know, then, you know, the real question is, it starts to ask where, where is the power really? Are we willing to concede some level of authority and choice to the community in that, in that uh, exchange? So it's one way to think about those things. When I uh, heard that, it just uh, made me think of my time um, both at DePaul and at University of Laverne and navigating some of those aspects and um, exactly the, the complexity of that and where that power dynamic um, lies. I know for, for me, because I came to the university fr from being in the community, like that was more of my dip disposition. So being able to see that, but there are all those real tensions that you have to navigate and depending on sort of, you know, what spot you, you identify from, it's going to either make or break what that looks like, how much power you feel you have, how much you're willing to, to back down, uh, how much you're willing to, to be open. Um, especially when we talk about the best practices, having community lead these, these efforts or have a strong voice. Yeah. I mean, I love that whole interview. I think he has so much, so many great insights. And I think it just, to me, speaks to the, the necessary ambiguity of all of it and how, you know, it's just going to be messy. If you have community partnerships, it's not necessarily going to be clear or linear or straightforward. And that just has to be okay. Right. I mean, this is the kind of feel that stuff happens and you have to be able to, you know, you can't be a control freak in this work <laughs> because, you know, you won't be happy, but you have to understand and and uh, know when to, to step back. Um, so, no, I think it's powerful, especially when we could put the, the community front and center of, of, of this work um, and remembering the power dynamics that often exist. Well, you'll see a pattern here. I think I like beginnings. My second favorite was uh, the first episode of season two, a really, really special one for me because I got to interview Senator Tom Harkin, a longtime political hero of mine, got my political career started interning in his Cedar Rapids office. Like most people in Iowa politics have some con some connection there. Um, and I asked him about, you know, getting young people to run for office. I always tell them, and I said this in my farewell speech in the Senate, I said, you know, I said something about the Senate being, it's not broken, but it's dented and banged up a little bit. <laughs> uh, but I said, nowhere, nowhere else can a singular person, I think I said both the Senate and the House or the Congress, no, no other place can a singular person do more good for his or her state and country or more harm. <laughs> than in the House and in the Senate. You can have a big impact. And I, and I see that in state legislatures, too. A state legislator can do a lot for the state. This is just part of his take on it, but I, I thought his take was really, um, 
really nuanced. Like it's, he talked a lot about how it's not necessarily all functioning the way it's supposed to right now. And there may be reasons you think you don't want to be a part of that, but it's the place where you can do the most good. But I, I think also in pointing out it's the place where the most harm can be done is, you know, points out we all have a responsibility to step up and think about running for office because if, because the person in there has the power to make a big difference one way or another and you're, you're choosing to do it and not to do it has an impact on what way that goes. And I just thought he, you know, with his long career in the Senate, um, had an interesting take on that. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that with, you know, someone who uh, was a political mentor for, for you and, um, you know, thinking about what that means. And I think now, you know, more than ever, we see the impact of what, you know, running for office looks like and what it can do and people stepping up. Um, in Chicago, there was just an election announced for the 33rd Ward. It was between Deb Mel, who comes from a, a you know, long political family lineage in that ward, 40 years between her and her father in power. And um, this young Puerto Rican woman who ran as a democratic socialist and she, she won, Rosana Rodriguez won by 13 votes um, and, you know, put in some really amazing community engagement efforts. But, and this is in the city council that hasn't seen a lot of shift over the past few years. So thinking about the power of running for office, the voice that can be created uh, from that. um, And like he said, right, the impact. Yep. And that would be my one critique. He didn't specifically mention local election city councils, because, again, I think that's a huge place where you can make a big difference. And often there is a lack of people even willing to run. Um, It takes less time, less resources to run, you know, and you can still make a huge difference. Absolutely. All right, political scientists, what do you have to say? Yeah, Yeah, I mean, it it makes me think about... um, you know, all the other ways, like, so we were involved with an organization when I worked in New Jersey called Citizens Campaign. And one of the things they do is educate people about all the local boards and commissions Mm. that where seats often go unfilled. People don't even know about it. You don't have to run a campaign, subject yourself to the insanity. Uh, we, We do have a system that, especially at the local level, still has an enormous amount of openness to it. And, you know, I think having the experience of getting involved at that level can kind of show what the opportunities are if you dig in and 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 keep kind of pushing and, and moving into you know positions of more scope. But also the things that most affect our lives, the vast majority of those things are defined are, are you know decided at the local level. Uh, so yeah, no, it's I think it's just it's a great theme to keep reiterating. Emily, you said uh, he was the first political campaign that you interned in. Uh, I worked in his office. So, um, yeah, I, I worked on other campaigns, but he is the first, you know, where I got he was really where I got my experience with like what happens after you get elected. Constituent services um, is a lot of what I did, that kind of thing. And just seeing I think it gave me a real appreciation because we don't ever see that. Right. There's a, you know, they're up there taking votes and working on policy. And then they've got all these offices that are helping people figure out problems in their daily lives every single day. And it gave me a real appreciation for that side. Yeah. How about you, Andrew? What was your first like political campaign type thing that you did? It was when my dad ran for county legislator when I was six years old. 
and I had a big button that looked like my dad's button with Seligson across it, except it said, I'm Andy Seligson, dad for county legislator. And I went with my father to the Westchester Mall and, you know, shook hands for votes and whatever. And he knew that there was absolutely no way he was going to win because it was a heavily Republican district and he was running as a Democrat and he was this guy with like a German accent and it wasn't going to happen. But he just thought it was important for somebody to 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 represent that set of views and whatever. And uh, so, of course, I was devastated when he lost. I couldn't believe people didn't want my father because he was the best guy in the world. That's exactly it. He's literally the best person in the world and you don't want him. And uh, but it was a great experience. And yeah, so started early for me. Nice. Mine was um, in high school. Uh, I did. Uh, I worked in the campaign office of Carol Mosley Braun when she was running for the Senate for the first time as the first African-American female senator. So um, I don't think I totally understood it at the time. I was doing it as part of a class for my, I don't know, probably social studies in this Catholic all girls high school that I went to. But looking back at it, just thinking about how much it like sparked an interest in, in politics for me. I get to share uh, one of my favorite clips with um, you all. And this was from uh, when I first joined the um, the podcast in season three. Uh, I replaced JR, who um, was a wonderful contributor for the first two seasons. And um, he had other things to do. And so I came in. And um, so this is from uh, season three, episode four with with Mari Castaneda and Joseph Kumshinsky from UMass Amherst uh, talking about their book, Civic Engagement in Diverse Latinx Communities. Let's take a listen. One of the things that, that I started noticing was um, a you know, sort of emerging group of scholars that were doing this kind of work from different parts of the country. Um, and so coming together at various different events and gatherings, talking about what kind of work were they doing um, that was bringing together faculty, students and uh, community partners into these conversations of reciprocity, social justice, um, particularly in this moment in time when we're feeling increasingly that Latinx communities are under attack, both in terms of what's happening post Maria hurricane, um, but then also just with regards to what's happening with immigration mm-hmm. and um, and the fact that a lot of communities of color, but particularly Latinx communities, um, are feeling increasingly um, dismissed um, and be feeling um, excluded uh, and being demonized in so many ways about what is happening. And then oftentimes as well, and again, all, all these these narratives are, are sort of media narratives that get produced about who we are and what our communities are are um, are made of and, and are contributing to our society because again part of that narrative is also that we're not contributing very much at all mm-hmm. if anything we're extracting or we're creating the violence and all kinds of stuff and so in those conversations with folks really recognizing that in fact there was a lot of assets that were uh, very present in a lot of these community spaces that a lot of my friends and colleagues were involved in but also were taking um, were taking action and pushing back, not only in terms of the narratives, but reclaiming space and reclaiming um, sort of uh, their voices of how they can enter into, you know, public policy or even um, how, you know, certain um, discussions were happening in a community setting and so forth. Um, and so the book, what the impetus was really trying to bring together this whole range of partnerships that were happening at different parts of the country. 
I was really excited to do this interview. Um, I've known Joseph and Mari for a while and was really excited about the book and just the way that it's, um, you know, brought to the forefront um, Latinx scholars who are doing this work and oftentimes in our field of civic engagement um, is not recognized as such or we don't sort of talk about it. And so thinking about the impetus for the book, what they were experiencing themselves as um, Latinx scholars who are doing community engagement work and folks that they knew doing this work um, and creating the opportunity for it to be shared, um, you know, with the field uh, was really exciting. One of the things I really appreciated about having you on Marisol is the people you've brought on as interviewees. Um, I think you've really been able to introduce us and our audience to some incredibly fascinating people. And I just really appreciate you connecting with those new voices. And I think this is an amazing example of that. Their work was so interesting and they're really interesting and wonderful and caring people. And it was a great episode. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, so I love that in the title of the book is Diverse Latinx Communities, which calls attention to the fact that uh, sort of Latinx identity is not one thing that is part of diversity, but there's, you know, tremendous diversity within it and within the communities. And just in the conversation, the kind of the various contexts in which people who she, you know, Madi and Joe talked about in the book, the um, the context in which they're working, the settings of the communities. Uh, I just thought it, it really sort of enriched a dialogue about diversity that is often very constrained in the ways it shows up in many settings. Absolutely. And, you know, their emphasis on sort of the asset-based, um, you know, sort of foundation of the work and how they're working with, uh, with the communities. And so, um, Again, some of my favorite people thinking they do amazing work. And um, they also presented at the Eastern Region Campus Compact Conference and had a wonderful, you know, session and um, just were able to really demonstrate the impact of um, the book. And then um, that day without the day that I recorded them was the day after a symposium that they had about the book with the local community. And so we're able then to share that back with the community in a very reciprocal way. So exciting. So this next clip is with Persephone Lewis from University of San Diego. This is from season three, episode six, um, and it was focused on um, higher ed engagement with uh, Native communities, and she's talking about land acknowledgement statements. Let's take a listen. Well, I think there's a lot of things that they can do that doesn't necessarily engage the community, but honors the community. And I think in this country where we don't talk about Native people, where they are invisible, where the information that our students do learn is so skewed to be yeah. from, you know, a specific perspective, I think that universities really need to start with incorporating land acknowledgement statements, knowing who are the local tribes doing their research, you know, to know what their history was, what has their relationship been with um, the local governments, with the state government, what are some of their cultural practices? You know, a lot of tribes have um, open events. So maybe if they have a powwow or something like that, you know, starting, starting in, in those in those places to just start to understand who they are. 
So what I really appreciated uh, from uh, Persephone, who's the tribal liaison at University of San Diego, was just um, thinking about sort of the reflective practice that we need to engage in, especially when we're working with Native communities. So don't just jump to engagement. Start with honoring. Start with doing land acknowledgement statements. Start with building the relationships, going to events that are open, um, and not just sort of the imposition that um, we sometimes engage in when we're like, well, we want to engage, you know, let's go. Um, Really taking the time to to be reflective of the way that uh, Native histories has been erased, um, what we know about them has been skewed, and that the first step in um, really building a relationship is, is starting with the honoring um, of, the, of the contributions that they've made, um, and that um, the histories that, um, you know, they have in this land. I so uh, I think we talked about this when we talked about the continuums of service conference, but Persephone was at the conference. And for me, I had honestly many of the land acknowledgement statements I had heard previously themed, you know, they seemed kind of thin and uh, and I didn't I didn't quite get it. Like what why this would be valued when I heard her sort of demonstrate how you do it in a, in a way that's meaningful and appropriate that you like dig into the history of the relationship, you for, you kind of connect where you are with the reality of a longer story. Um, that it, it it reframed it for me in ways that um, and has led me in a bunch of places I've traveled just to go and read about histories that I didn't know about because I just felt like I ought to know even if I'm not like standing up in the front doing a land acknowledgement statement. I, I yeah, I just really love the idea of honoring as action. Like, you know, just because, yes, you can't dive right in and start working with the Native community, but that doesn't mean pull back and do nothing. Like, there are plenty of steps in between, and I think she gave some really concrete ways of thinking about what that can look like and why it's so important. Yeah, absolutely. And and the ways in which, you know, um, I think we have to continue to create spaces for voice to, to be present, um, you know, in this field and in the work that our institutions are doing. And so for our absolute favorite <laughs> clip of all of the seasons of all 50 episodes, we are going to play from season three, episode five, our favorite. Now the real drum roll. <laughs> Ready to listen? All right. Let me let me uh, be clear about what's going on here. So uh, our vice president for strategy and operations, Maggie Grove, has a daughter named Charlotte. And Charlotte is something of a budding artist. And I'm going to let others draw their own conclusions about the meaning of what I'm about to tell you. I'm just (laughs) giving you the facts. Charlotte uh, has drawn a series of images that I, I think it's fair to say depict me in the various roles I play in my life as a purple pig. (laughs) So that's the the young artist vision. And I just have to go with it. So there's one of me cycling, a thing I like to do. Uh, There's um, one of me 
uh, holding a microphone like I'm giving a talk and the microphone actually says Campus Compact in case anyone doubted <laughs> that these were depictions of me as a pig. Uh, and many of them are labeled Mr. Pig. So that that's the name of me as a pig. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm I'm starting to wonder how Maggie talks about you at home. <laughs> there is, yes, so apparently some por- porcine imagery that uh, is deployed. <laughs> you raise an excellent point. Okay, we're back. Well, you know, that one's just an acknowledgement that sometimes this is fun. <laughs> And sometimes it's fun at Andrew's expense. <laughs> uh, I would just like to point out that um, my one aspiration when I think about my legacy at, at Campus Compact is that I would be known as the porcine president. And I feel like I may have nailed it down. So we'll yeah. add that to your business card. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and this is just to show that we have a sense of humor. We like having fun. Um, and if you can't do this work and laugh and have fun, then you shouldn't be doing it at all. Amen. Amen. <laughs> so that's it for us uh, from Compact Nation Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you for a big shout out. And thank you to our listeners who, as Molly says, if you've been listening after all this time, And you're still listening. Wow. Hi, mom. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I told my son that I was doing a podcast and he was like, eh, whatever. (laughs) I don't care. (laughs) But thanks to all the listeners. uh, And as always, don't forget to rate and review our show. Uh, If you have any questions or suggestions, email us at podcast at compact.org or chime in on social media at hashtag compact nation pod. And many thanks to my co-hosts and our amazing producer, uh, Molly, and our intern, Stephanie, for making the magic happen. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Compact Nation podcast comes to you from Campus Compact's national headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts. Our hosts are Marisol Morales, Emily Shields, and me, Andrew Seligson. Our producer is Molly Leeper. Music is by Andrew Savage. As always, you can find us online at compact.org slash podcast or on social media at hashtag compactnationpod. Thanks for listening. And remember, until you're satisfied that the world is good enough, keep doing something.